All right, let's get started with uh, a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, you are good and honorable and you love us and you've told us what we need to hear in your word. Father, it's my hope that we will honor you by listening to your word and humbling ourselves beneath you, which is where we belong. Father, I ask that you'll forgive our sin, forgive my sin, keep it from from hindering me in your word. Help me to know the forgiveness that your son Jesus has offered at the cross to proceed in faith here. Help us to, to take these things in and to do well. Let them be lifelong lessons for us. Father, we need your blessing. and We need your provision in our life. And part of that is your spirit working inside of us to transform us and to make us into people that are better than we are right now. And people closer to the image of your son, Jesus Christ. So, Father, please do that in our lives. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Okay, I'm going to read uh, from 1 Timothy chapter 5 here. Uh, We're going to begin in verse 17 and read to the end of the chapter. Paul writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in word and doctrine. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and... The laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. Those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all, that the rest also may fear. I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that you observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing with partiality. Do not lay hands on anyone hastily, nor share in other people's sins. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent infirmities. Some men's sins are clearly evident, preceding them to judgment, but those of some men follow later. Likewise, the good works of some are clearly evident, and those that are otherwise cannot be hidden. So that's the passage that we're going to look at uh, this evening as I record this on uh, Sunday. Uh, For those of you who can't be there, I hope the video is a blessing. This is an important passage. It's a really important passage. It talks to us about elders. Uh, Verse 17 says, let the elders, and that's who it's dealing with. An elder is a pastor, um, pastor of a church. An, An elder is not simply an older person. Um, an elder in this context is not some distant authority, you know, some person in a white tower or in a monastery or in a cathedral or in a holy city who is dictating to all the little churches and pastors beneath him what should be done. No, no. An elder is boots on the ground where you live. Timothy was a pastor in Ephesus. Uh, he's serving as the, in this Ephesian church as a pastor, as an elder. And as he's serving as a pastor, an elder in the Ephesian church, Paul writes in this letter, and he's writing about the position that Timothy is in and how Timothy should act in that position. And we're going to look at this in three stages. Point number one, provision. Uh, point number two, protection. 
And point number three, purity. We're going to break the passage up that way. We start with what I've called provision here, which is verses 17 and 18. Uh, let's spend a little time looking at these two verses. Again, I'll read them. Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Provision. I guess that in some context, it's true in just about every arena that uh, we're only going to provide material things in an ongoing way to people who we see as essential. And that's a real important word for 2020, the year that we're in, isn't it? There's been a lot of debate about what exactly is essential in our world. Um, is school essential? Is the supermarket essential? Is the casino essential? Is the church essential? Is the local restaurant essential? What businesses are essential and what businesses aren't? And when you say what businesses are essential and what businesses aren't, you might as well be asking what jobs are essential and what jobs aren't. I mean, if a business is essential, then the people that work there are essential, right? And I know that's, that's a conversation that's been had where I work. What exactly are essential employees? Employees necessary to an essential business, I guess. Let me ask a question. Are pastors essential? Are they essential? Are they necessary? Are they needed? I think from the world's perspective, the answer has come pretty clear in the year 2020, hasn't it? It's become pretty obvious. Pastors, according to the rest of the world, not very essential because churches are not very essential. And that's really what this is tied up in. Churches aren't essential to our world, in our world's eyes. And so pastors are not very essential to our world. There was a case that uh, went to uh, the Supreme Court's, uh, right on the verge of the Supreme Court's uh, table. Uh, and the Supreme Court of the land decided that they weren't going to hear it, but it was a case that went all the way up through the state and federal appellate courts. And the Supreme Court had the option whether or not they were going to take it or whether or not they were going to pass on it and accept the lower court's ruling. A lower court had ruled that in Nevada, churches are uh, fairly limited to 50 people inside the building at a time right now because of the coronavirus, which, well, okay, if, if that's the standard, then that's the standard. But the problem was, in the same state of Nevada, the governor had said that uh, casinos could operate at half of their fire code capacity. So if you were a casino that could hold 2,000 people, you could have 1,000 people in that casino 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. And from what I understand of casinos, that's pretty much how they operate. There are people in there all the time. So if your capacity in your big room was 2,000 people, you could have 1,000 people in there all the time. If your casino's capacity was 10,000, you could have 5,000 in there all the time. 
didn't matter what they were doing, whether they're huddled around a, you know, a card table or huddled around a, a set of slot machines or uh, nuzzled up close to a bar. In Nevada, even right now, if you're a casino, you can have up to half your fire code capacity. But if you're a church where people want to worship God, you can only have 50 people in the building. And it doesn't matter if your church is as big as that casino. Doesn't matter if, according to the fire code, you can have 10,000 people in your church. There's only 50 allowed at a time to worship God in a building. And the Supreme Court decided, yeah, you know what? We're not going to take on this case. We'll accept the lower court's ruling. And so there are churches in Nevada right now, no matter how big they are, that can only meet with 50 people. But if all 2,000 of them want to go hang out at the casino, it's perfectly fine. What is essential? Well, in the world's perspective, we pretty much have a pretty good idea about what's essential, don't we? Whatever the world needs to make money is essential. But the God who gives us food, the God who gives us land and rain, the God who gives us sun to shine so that crops can grow, the God who protects us, worship of Him in any kind of community is not essential. One of the disturbing things, though, that I've noticed through 2020 is not just the difficulty of the world's perspective when it comes to the operation of churches and pastors, but even many people who profess to be Christians, and I, I think this has been a long time coming. There are many people who profess to be Christians who don't seem to think the role of a pastor is all that important either. They think, well, I can still have my faith, and it will be my personal faith. And I can still live my Christian life and talk to my God. I don't need a pastor for any of that. And you know what? That's true. You can have faith and you can, you have the freedom because of what Jesus has done on the cross to talk to God directly. You don't need a priest or somebody to intervene. That's true. And yet God gives us a church and he commands us to function inside of a church. And he gives us gifts that complement each other inside the church. And he commands us to assemble as a church. And he says in Ephesians chapter 4 that Jesus has given his church pastors. I think many Christians don't think they're necessary either. Matter of fact, I think there are a lot of Christians who basically only go to church for the sake of ticking off the box that says they went to worship. And then a lot of them only go to the other services because they think their kids need it. almost like private school. They go because, you know, it's important for them that their kids go. Their kids are going to be taught something about God. Their kids are going to develop important relationships. Their kids need moral instruction. They don't. It's not essential for them. There's a lot of uh, churches that have said, well, you know, we'll just go to the house church model for this period of time, meaning we'll just have lots of Bible studies inside individual homes instead of meeting together in collective assembly worship. Except pastors are supposed to be responsible for the teaching that goes on. If everybody is meeting in a house church, 
how can a pastor be responsible for what that church is being taught? You need a whole lot of pastors. So, not only is it clear how the world feels about pastors, but I think it's becoming increasingly clear how many in the church feel about pastors, too. That they don't need them. They're not necessary. But Paul tells Timothy, let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor. The word rule means administrate or oversee. Let the pastors who are who are doing a good job administrating. Do you know pastors are supposed to do that? What do you think it means to administrate? I think it means monitor the air conditioning and keep the lights on and keep the grass mowed. That's not what it means. No, it means administering over the teaching of the Word of God. Tough to do that if the pastors don't know what's being taught from the Word of God in the church. Tough to administrate over sin if the pastor's are never allowed in people's lives. This says, let the pastors who rule well, and then I like this phrase, be counted worthy of double honor. That doesn't say pay them twice as much money. Now the word honor, it certainly includes money. And we get the sense of that with the English word when we use it in the language of an honorarium. If you go and you speak someplace, you might be given an honorarium. You might be given some money for, for uh, the, the honor of you coming and speaking there. You know, this is clearly talking about wages. Verse 18 says, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. In other words, if an ox is going to go working through a field treading out the grain, you shouldn't bind up its mouth so that it can't eat anything while it does it. You know, and then... Uh, quotes from the New Testament in verse 18. The scriptures also say that the laborer is worthy of his wages. So, yeah, we're talking about money. We're talking about provision. But verse 17 says, let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor. While you do have to meet the provisions and the needs of your pastor, I think what is most important here is that the heart of the congregation believes, truly believes, and states and makes clear this pastor is worthy of our honor. We consider him worthy of our honor. Worthy of what we pay him. Worthy of our honor in every other sense of the word. There are certainly congregations who can't afford to pay a pastor very much. And there are uh, many pastors in many places who don't need the congregation to pay them very much. But in those cases, this verse still applies. Because what it says is, let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor. I have uh, I've preached in our church for a number of years. It'll actually be eight years here in a couple of months. Man, that's, that's hard to believe. Um, for the majority of those eight years, I haven't, I haven't been paid any money to pastor or preach. We have other pastors who are working very hard in the church, not being paid any money or being paid relatively little money. The point is not 
how much they're paid if their needs are met and they're provided for and they're at peace with what's going on. The point is, if someone were to walk into this church or walk into the lives of the people at this church and get to know them, would they find in the course of getting to know our church or getting to know the people in our church, would they find a congregation of people who obviously, who obviously thought that their pastor was worthy of great honor? Now, in order to get that, the pastor actually does need to be worthy of honor. So, you know, if, uh, if you have a pastor that is neglecting responsibilities and not doing a good job and not concerned with what God's Word says and not concerned with, with how the church functions and operates, then, well, you know, <laughs> I guess you don't have a very good pastor. But if you have a pastor who cares and who's trying hard, and he's doing his best, and he's doing it on behalf of the Lord for your benefit. Notice the second part of verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. Especially those who work, who labor, in the Word of God and the teaching of the Bible. There are some pastors who uh, they may be capable of teaching, but that's not their primary call. But the men who are doing the precious work, opening God's Word, and teaching God's Word and competing with the messaging in the world that would enslave people to sin, that would ensnare them for destruction, that would lead them to eternal hell. The verse says, let those who labor in the word and in the teaching that will save people, that will protect people, especially those guys, let them be counted worthy of double honor. All four of our pastors in our church labor in the word and doctrine. Certainly not just me. You know, Pastor Steve labors in the Word and doctrine. Labors. Sunday morning, Sunday school. Men's Bible study every other Sunday evening. Filling in in the pulpit whenever there's a vacancy. Wednesday night with the children. And then out in the community at a Christian school all throughout the school year. Now, Pastor Steve, he, he labors in word and doctrine. Pastor Justin, he labors in word and doctrine. Sunday schools, small groups, discipling in people's lives. Pastor Nathan, Sunday schools, youth groups, Sunday nights, youth groups, Wednesday nights, discipleship. Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor. Not let the elders who make every decision that you agree with. No, that's not what it says. Not let the elders who are really likable and have a great personality. <laughs> not let the elders who are attractive and, and are able to draw lots and lots of people because they're seeker-friendly. I, I have no condemnation for people being 
amicable and personable, but this says, let the elders who rule well be kind of worthy of double honor. How much do we value a pastor? What is it worth to have a good pastor? You know, that's a good question. What is it worth to you to have a good pastor? We can also ask, what is it worth to you to have a good church? Since that's the pastor's job, role. What's the benefit? How valuable to you is a good church? Maybe it's not very valuable. Maybe, you know, you try to find one and then be around one, but maybe it's not all that profitable to your life. How much do we value the Lord? It's His church. The only reason we have a church is because everything in His New Testament points us to it. How much do we value our lives? What would our lives be like without the church in the world? Second point, protection. Verse 19. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except for two or three witnesses. Those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all that the rest may also fear. Um, so it says in verse 19 that Timothy as a pastor shouldn't receive any kind of formal accusation against a pastor except from the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, let's think about this for a second. First of all, the standard of two or three witnesses is not unique to the pastor. It applies to everybody in the church. Church discipline is if somebody sins against you, if somebody does something wrong against you, you're supposed to go to them directly and call them to repentance. You know, it's a one-on-one -on -one affair, unless you're in a weird situation where that isn't appropriate. Okay. And then, if they won't listen, then you take another person so that every charge, every accusation, uh, comes on the on the account of two or three witnesses. So you take someone else and you go and you confront the person, you know, with a, with a witness. And then, you know, it goes be before the whole church if they still won't listen. So this idea of two or three witnesses, it's not unique to pastors. It's the same protection afforded everybody. Okay. Now, how does a wit a witness function? It really depends on the on the difficulty and on the crime. For instance, if if uh, someone has just uh, uh, take let's use stealing. If someone has taken something that doesn't belong to them, and it's a one-on-one -on -one matter that they can't resolve, and the a person uh, goes to you know another Christian person in the church and says, "Hey, look, I've confronted this person who's stolen from me. I've asked him to return it. Will you go with me now and uh, and help me confront the person?" And so the two go, and they go. Now, if the two go, and uh, they say, hey, look, I'm coming along with Jack to be a witness here. Jack says, you know, you, you stole something from him. Is this true? Now, if the person whom he's asking says, no, I didn't steal anything from Jack. This is mine, and I've owned it for, you know, X amount of years. Then the witness's job is to look at Jack and say, Jack, I'm not going to be a very good witness here. You're telling me this, and uh, and he's telling me that, and how am I supposed to know the difference here? Do you, do you have any other evidence that this thing belongs to you? Because I'm not a very good witness, right? So in that case, you know, a witness's job is pretty tough. It's, it's not the witness's job to make an ultimate decision when there's a legitimate dispute. But let's say that the witness goes along and the guy's like, yeah, yeah, I took it from Jack. You know, Jack borrowed some money from me that he hasn't returned, so I decided I was going to go over to 
to his property and take this thing. Well, that's sin, you know. If someone owes you money, especially a Christian to a Christian, you can't just go over to their house and take something from them. That's sin. So in that case, the witness would be like, you know, the, the Bible says that, you know, you're supposed to freely lend to the person in need and you, you can't, you certainly can't steal and take without permission. You can't just show up at somebody's house. This is wrong. You need to return it. And the guy says, no, I'm not going to return it to Jack. You know, I took it and uh, I'm keeping it. Well, now the two witnesses can go before the church and say, look, hey, here's what's going on. Uh, and, you know, there's there's the person who's been wronged and the person who's gone and confronted the wrongdoer and, and can also attest that this guy's been wrong and the wrong's been done. And then the church can deal with it by putting that person outside the church and, depending on the nature of the crime, going to the authorities and say, look, hey, this is ridiculous. So same thing for a pastor. You know, a pastor should not have less protection than anybody else in the church. But unfortunately, and this is the reality, oftentimes a pastor does. A pastor has less protection than other people in the church. Because people will accuse a pastor of things and gossip about a pastor behind the pastor's back. And there are a lot of times where people in the church just, you know, they'll listen to the gossip and they'll they'll talk about a pastor behind his back and they'll entertain it because they figure, well, the pastor is a, is a public figure, so it's fair game to talk about him behind his back. Almost like talking to a politi about a politician behind their back. So, you know, it wouldn't, wouldn't bother me to say something about the governor when the governor's not present, so I'll just go ahead and talk about the pastor while well, the pastor's not present too because he's a public figure. Well, that's nonsense to the Bible. That's nonsense. A pastor is supposed to be a brother in Christ. It's supposed to be like a family member. It shouldn't be gossiping about a pastor or listening to gossip about a pastor behind the pastor's back. It shouldn't be slandering his character behind his back. But, you know, a lot of people will engage in all of that because, again, there's this assumption, well, the pastor, you know, he's a public figure, so we can say whatever we want about him. Paul tells Timothy, if someone comes to you with an accusation about a pastor, he gets the same protection of witnesses needing to be established and everything else. He can't entertain just the assassination of his character without, without the proper procedure here. Okay. Now, I say that, and I know what the modern-day concern is. The modern-day concern is, well, what about the pastor has been accused of like abusing a child or sexually assaulting a woman or something like that, you know, then, I mean, are you really telling me that there has to be two or three witnesses before before anyone can go tell Timothy, another pastor, about what's gone on with this other? Let's say there's two two pastors. Let's say Timothy and, and John. And, and let's say uh, John, let's say a child comes forward and tells his parents that, that Pastor John over here has touched him inappropriately. And then so what do the parents do? You know, are, are you telling me they can't go and they can't tell Pastor Timothy about what their son is saying Pastor John did because there's not two or three witnesses? No, that's not in the spirit of what this is talking about. That's not in the spirit of what this is talking about. Okay? And we need to understand that. The spirit of God's word is that there are certain peoples and classes of people that need to be protected and Certainly, in the Old Testament, children and women both fall into those classes where there is a responsibility of protection. Uh, if you want to get a sense of this, you could turn to Deuteronomy chapter 22 and look at verses 25, 26, and 27. Deuteronomy 22, 25, 26, and 27. What you're going to find is that it, the Bible says in the Old Testament law of God that 
if a woman is in the field and a man assaults her and she goes and she tells the elders and the people in the city that someone had assaulted her in the field where no one could see and no one could hear, that the woman is to be believed in that in that scenario and the man is to be the man is to be judged. That's what the Bible says. So, you know, the the Bible protects uh, women and the Bible protects children. So if there is a pastor accused of gross sexual misconduct, that doesn't mean he's guilty, but it also doesn't mean you don't even listen to the accusation. Okay, that's that's ridiculous. If there is a man, if there is a pastor or any other man accused of gross sexual misconduct, you have to take that seriously and you have to investigate it, because you know there are are classes of people who can't defend themselves, and they need others to defend and to speak for them. And that's important, and we need to understand that. Now, someone could be accused of something that they didn't do, um, and in difficult situations, you know, you have to make a call as to what the outcome of the scenario is going to be. But uh, at the same time, you know, a pastor doesn't get some kind of immunity in abusive situations uh, just because there was nobody else around. That's not in the spirit of God's word at all. So, you know, if, if there's an accusation against anyone that comes to my attention that someone has been sexually abusive to another person in our church, not only am I going to take that seriously, uh, but I'm going to the local authorities about it. And that's what we've done in the past. We've been in situations like this in the last eight years, not with pastors, but with just other people in the community, someone comes and reports sexual sin and sexual misconduct and, and an abu even in abusive ways, and the authorities get contacted. Um, you know, because there's not supposed to be some special protection for predators in the church. Two or three witnesses is important when we're dealing with sin, but we're, when we're dealing with something that brings the penalty of the law and then involves people who've been abused, you, you have to take those seriously because there are victims who can't defend themselves. Um, so I hope I've made that clear. But in the, in, the, in the sense of protection for pastors, if one person says that, you know, he thinks the pastor is misusing funds, you know, that's not something you should just say without evidence. Now, if you think the pastor is misusing funds and you've got canceled checks to prove it, <laughs> now you've got evidence. You've got one witness is you and witness number two is the canceled check. You know, <laughs> If you think that a pastor is, is going out and getting drunk and you've seen him and then you've got a couple other people that have seen him drunk too, then you got two or three witnesses. But if you just think that, if you just have a... a, a suspicious heart or a malicious attitude towards somebody, you can't just go around making accusations without any evidence or proof. You couldn't do that to anybody else in the church. You can't do that for a pastor. Pastors are particularly vulnerable to it. Okay, that's not right. So we've talked about provision. We've talked about protection. Uh, let's hit the third point, which is the, the... Well, I guess one more point in protection. Sorry, I should have said this. You know, there's, there's, one, there's one other thing here. Verse 20 says, Those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all, so the rest may fear. When a pastor who has taken the position of leadership in the church is found 
in some sort of gross misconduct, whether it's with money or whether it's you know with violence or whether it's with, with some other sexual sin or whatever it is, when a pastor is found in some kind of gross misconduct, it's not supposed to be a private thing. That pastor is supposed to be rebuked in front of everybody. And the reason is so that all the other pastors as well as the people in the church can fear knowing if I engage in gross misconduct, I'm going to be, my sin isn't going to be covered up either. I'm going to be humiliated. I'm going to be embarrassed because my sin is going to be proclaimed, you know, as well. Okay, so we're not interested in protecting abusers or protecting unrepentant sinners or we're not interested in that. We're interested in protecting the innocent from false accusations, which means there needs to be evidence. There needs to be a legitimate process. Pastors should not be tried uh, by the rumor mill, okay? Uh, but we're also not interested in, in protecting abusers, um, even if it's uncomfortable to deal with sin publicly, okay? So that's uh, provision, protection, and now finally, uh, purity. We'll just read this and then a couple of closing ideas. Paul writes to Timothy, I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels. He's calling God the Father, the Lord Jesus, and an angelic host of witnesses. That you observe these things, accusations and rumors and, and issues that come up in the church, that you observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing with partiality. Timothy, when there is an accusation or a charge or when there's someone being mistreated or when there's a pastor who's laboring hard and he's, he's, he's not being treated fairly as far as compensation and payment and whatever it is, I charge you before God the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, and an assembly of heavenly angels who are watching you, that as you oversee all these situations, you observe them without prejudice and you don't act in partiality. You can see both sides of this being a difficulty sometimes in ministry. Um, maybe you're ministering with another pastor and, and you don't get along with that pastor real well all the time. Your personalities are very different. Well, if there's some kind of charge or accusation against him, you shouldn't take a negative stance towards the guy just because, you know, you may have <laughs> some personal difficulties with them in your past. But by the same token, if you're serving with someone in ministry and they get accused of something wrong, you shouldn't just dismiss it either because, well, you know, that person's been my, my brother in arms. That person's been a fellow pastor with me for all these years and I've never heard anything like this. Uh, Paul says you take these things seriously. You know, why do judges take things seriously? Well, because they're conducting the business of ruling in a court publicly. You know, whether or not they're a good judge or a bad judge, the public is going to decide based on how they rule. And Paul is telling Timothy, you observe all these things without prejudice and partiality because there is a higher authority than the general public who's watching you, Timothy. God the Father, God the Son, and all the holy angels. A warning in verse 22, Do not lay hands on anyone hastily, nor share in other people's sins. Keep yourself pure. The laying hands on hastily talks about like ordination. When I was ordained, there 
that other pastors put their hands on me. Um, it's like a symbolic idea of praying that God will bless their ministry. And so Paul is warning Timothy, who's a pastor, don't, don't appoint other pastors quickly and hastily. He's already in 1 Timothy given them the qualifications for doing this. But he's saying, don't appoint pastors hastily, nor share in other people's sins. You know, if other people are gonna if other people are going to appoint an unqualified pastor, don't go along with it just because they expect you to go along with it. <laughs> don't, you know, if you've got a pastor candidate who is not qualified, don't go along with it, you know, as as a pastor yourself just because everybody else wants you to go along because again a pastor is an authoritative position in the church you know deacons are not authoritative pastors are pastors are he says keep yourself pure then we get this parenthetical Timothy had a real concern for his purity and this comes out in verse 23 no longer drink only water but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent infirmities Apparently, Timothy had taken some kind of personal vow because Paul had not put this burden on him, but he'd taken some personal vow that in order to maintain his purity and always keep his judgment sound and clear, he was going to totally abstain from alcohol. But, you know, water in the ancient world wasn't always the safest thing to drink. <laughs> you know, if, if you were limiting 100% of your, of your uh, fluid intake to water, in the ancient world, there was a good chance that you were going to expose yourself to parasite disease and, and you know, various other stomach issues. And even if those issues were not, you know, violent to the portion of death, uh, there was a good chance that you were going to be regularly unsettled. And Paul tells Timothy, look, it's okay to drink a little bit of wine, which was fermented, and the fermentation process was purifying. It's okay to drink a little to drink a little wine for your stomach's sake, Timothy. That's what he's saying here. But that's how concerned Timothy was as a pastor with his purity. He didn't want to invite anything like that into his life. And Paul doesn't condemn that. I mean, I have that kind of view towards alcohol too. He doesn't say, Timothy, this is a foolish thing that you've envisioned, that you're not going to drink any wine. He doesn't say that. He just tells him as you know, a father figure in Timothy's life, Timothy, as you strive for purity in all other areas of your pastorate, because that's what this is. This is a call to purity. He says, you strive for purity in all other areas. Do what you need to do for your stomach's sake so that you can function. That's what he's telling him. Timothy was pretty concerned about these things. And then verses 24 and 25 is where we'll close. Some men's sins are clearly evident, preceding them to judgment. But those of some men follow later. There are some men who are sinful and it's obvious. Those men should not be made pastors. <laughs> it doesn't take a lot of careful reflection to see it, you know. But there are there are other men who are much more concealing about their sin and who they truly are. Um there are predators who cover up their predation. There are swindlers who appear benevolent until you see the sin. 
there are smooth talkers who will only speak their true nature, violent, malicious, and selfish words when they are in the most private situations. The best and most cautious uh, pastor can appoint someone who they think is qualified and who appears qualified only to find out that this pastor who looks so qualified is, is a wolf in sheep's clothing. Now, I want to issue a caution about this. There are not many pastors who stay in a ministry for very long. You may not think that eight years that I've been a pastor here is very long. And I suppose it's not over the course of a human being's life. But the average pastor, I think, stays uh, no more than two years in the pulpit uh, before changing churches in our society. It seems like I've, I've heard that statistic or some version of it over and over again throughout my life. Eight years is a long time. Those of you who've been watching my life very closely for eight years, undoubtedly you have seen sin. I hope you haven't seen unrepentant sin. I don't know of any. But I hope I'm not blind to it. I hope you'll tell me if you do. So, if you give any Christian man enough time, you're going to see them sin. That's not what this verse is talking about. This verse is saying that there are some men who for the sake of acquiring power and powerful positions can cover up and conceal their sin very well. But given time, the sins of that man follow later. But then there's the flip side of this in verse 25, and I prefer this. <laughs> this is where we'll close. Paul says, Likewise, the good works of some are clearly evident, and those that are otherwise cannot be hidden. Um, in other words, there are some men who the good works in their lives are clearly evident. And then there are some men who the good works in their life are not just obvious and everybody can see it all the time. <laughs> but, but over time, the good works come to light. John MacArthur in his study note says, the same of what was said about sin is true of good works. Some good works are, are evident. Some are obvious. Others come to light later. Be careful before you look at a pastor who you don't know of any sinful issues against. It's not that you've got some but something against him. But, you know, you just you don't personally see a lot of fruitfulness in his ministry. You don't see where, where he's doing anything all that meaningful. And you're like, eh, you know, that guy... I guess he's he's not he's not a bad guy. He's a nice guy. I just I don't think that he he really does very much to help us. Some good works are are clearly evident. But there are others whose good works become evident later on. Um There are going to be uh Christian men who die um, after ministering in our church and the whole world and most of the church will have no idea of the majority of the good works that they've done in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's coming a day in heaven where the good works will be presented. And even in this earth, that's true too. 
I think uh, any Christian who's honest and who's been paying attention shouldn't have to think too hard before they come up with examples of maybe they prejudged someone and said, I just don't see where that person is doing an awful lot for the Lord. And then you come to find out later that that person was a key instrument of discipleship in someone else's life who was struggling, or that person was was giving very benevolently, but quietly, not letting the right hand know what the left hand is doing, and keeping somebody afloat totally unbeknownst to anybody else, or that person was was ministering in prayer, or praying alongside someone, and embracing someone else's need and position and supplication before the Lord for months all throughout a trial. Now that person was the one who who always went and picked up a, a hammer or picked up a saw or picked up a, a baking pan or picked up a broom or a mop or picked up a cleaning rag or picked up a baby when there was a need. Look, sometimes those works are, are clearly evident. But the ones that aren't evident those good works are still going to come to light later on too. And I wonder what's going to show up in your life over time. And when you stand before the Lord, what's going to be said of you? Are there good works in your life that you're busy with, laboring at, working at that are going to vindicate your faithful service to the Lord when you stand before Him even if nobody sees Him now or are you not doing a whole lot for the Lord are you are you like the servant who buried the master's talent in the sand and waited for paradise to show up you know, your life is is going to mean more ultimately than a funeral service. It's going to be more than than a flash in the pan when you stand before God and, and you give an account of it. What are you doing with your life for the Lord? That's what these good works are. That's what matters most is what are you doing for the Lord? Is it meaningful? Are you working hard? I've got to think there was some Encouragement from Paul to Timothy here. Timothy, work hard. Let good works come out of your life. And you know, the flip side of that can be said of verse 24 too. If you're a sinner, you may be really good at covering up some of your sin now or else it might be clearly evident. But One day you're going to stand before the Lord and it's all going to come to light. Are you prepared to face the Lord and give an account of your sin to Him? Are you prepared to stand under judgment for your sin? You know, Jesus died on the cross, so you don't have to do that. And that's my hope. I don't have to stand before the Lord and give an account of my sin. I get to stand before the Lord and give an account of my good works. In some ways, verse 24 and verse 25 is like a, a prejudgment picture of the dichotomy between sinners who stand condemned to hell and sinners who've been saved by grace and will inherit the kingdom of God. Either you're going to stand before God and give an account for the sin in your life because you've rejected Jesus Christ and you've not entrusted Him with your life or else you're going to stand before God as a forgiven sinner and because you've been forgiven, you don't have to give an account for the sin in your life. 
and you're going to stand to receive an inheritance uh, based on the good works that you've done for Jesus Christ. Now, receiving the inheritance will be based on faith, but the inheritance will be in part from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the reward for those who have been faithful. Which one are you? Are you the sinner whose sin is going to be called to light and judgment? Or are you the sinner whom Jesus Christ has forgiven and he is your Lord and so you don't have to give an account of your sin to God? Which one are you? My feet are firmly in the latter camp and I'm, I'm thankful that they are. It's not costless to me. I've surrendered my life to the Lord Jesus Christ. But it is a privilege to know that I'm forgiven and I have an eternal inheritance. I don't have to worry about hell. And you don't either if you'll accept Jesus as your Savior. Let me pray for everybody now. Father, I thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, and the love that you've shown to us by sending him to die on the cross to save sinners. And I thank you for the forgiveness that we have based on the work that he's done. And I thank you for all those who've accepted that forgiveness by placing their faith, their lives in the hands of your risen son, Jesus. Father, these are the church, all those who are saved. And I thank you for pastors that you've given the church. I thank you for pastors who've been so influential in my life, who've shepherded me, who've overseen the ministries that I have benefited from who have preached a true and right message from your word because they have labored in your word. And I, my life, my family, my wife, my children have been the, the beneficiaries of their great labor. Father, help us to honor them, to consider them worthy of double honor. Father, help us not to fall in the trap of thinking that Christianity is a personal bodybuilding type spiritual experience that is carried out in isolation away from a church and away from a pastor and away from all the gifts that you've given your people through the spiritual uh, community. Help us to behave rightly in the church, to be faithful when we deal with accusations and trials, to protect those, yet to be impartial when we look at those who have done wrong, and to be public when necessary, and to Never shrink away from doing what needs to be done. That has been the case for as long as I've known here. Father, I pray that will continue to be the case. Please grant us your protection and provision. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.